morning, everyone. Welcome to Every Nation this morning. I'm so glad you're here. Um, we get to continue in our established series, our super long marathon of a series. It's going to be 31 weeks. We'll have a few breaks in, breaks in there throughout the year, but uh, this, one's a, this one's a doozy. And we're going through all of, all of Scripture kind of in a bit of a top skim. And we're in our fourth week. And today we're going to be looking at the concept of faith, uh, specifically active faith. Uh, and uh, the person that we're going to be looking uh, at today in Scripture is Abraham, who's kind of the father of Israel and uh, the person that God chose to begin his reconciliation plan through for the world. Uh, how, how far we've gotten so far is we've talked about how the world is created for relationship. Uh, that's what God decided was the point of this whole thing. And then man betrayed that uh, through sin. And now man is in need of salvation. And so we're talking about the beginning of God's plan to reconcile us to him because of the sin and the alienation that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And it's interesting because God starts this plan through a person. Maybe a better way to say it is God starts this plan through a family. You know, we know them now as, you know, the Hebrews or the Jews or the Israelites. Um, but it started with one guy named Abraham. And I think it's really a fascinating point that we don't give a lot of credit to uh, sometimes. And we, we don't stop and think about this maybe enough, is that it is an extremely interesting thought that God's plan for bringing you and I back into relationship with him from the very beginning starts with relationships and through a family and not through what would be more logical ways. Like, for instance, force. Uh, wouldn't force be way more logical? If you think about, like, if you ever read the whole Old Testament, it is a mess. Like, God is... God's working really hard at, uh, at having these people love and trust him and follow him. And he's like, I want to use you. I want to use you as the plan for having my, you know, glory made manifest. And eventually Jesus is going to be, a, you know, a part of the lineage of the Hebrews. And it's going to, the, the whole Jewish nation is leading towards this, you know, savior. That's like, it's a, it's an amazing story, but super inefficient, they're always giving up on him and they're leaving God behind. They're not giving him glory. And then he has to rebuke them. And then he has to, you know, punish them. But then he brings them back and he provides all these things. It's this messy, messy, messy story. And if I was him, I, 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 you know, in my lack of wisdom and not being God, I'd probably pick another plan, like just force. Like, you know what? Here, I'm going to just win. And you, uh, I'm going to be God and be dominant and be strong and reconcile you to me. But as we've been talking about, God's priority really is a love relationship with us. And so in a sense, he's a little handcuffed and he can't use force because he doesn't want to force us to love him because there's no such thing as being forced to love somebody. So now this whole plan has to be executed through this wildly inconvenient and inefficient uh, thing called family and what now we know as the church. And so the inefficiency of God's, uh, or seeming, seemingly so, is a very interesting, interesting thing to think about. So what I want to do is just read a, a bit of a prayer phrase, just a couple of pulling out a couple of verses from Genesis 12, 16 and 21, just giving us a little snapshot into Abraham's life. So we're on the same page uh, and um, says this, um, just starting in verse one of chapter 12, and we're going to bounce around a little bit. But uh, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left Haran as the Lord had told him. Now uh, uh, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But 
the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So here already you have, um, you have this story of a man who has to have faith in this big promise that God gave him. The promise was, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. How's that for a promise? Uh, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And then he looks around and goes, I'm old and my wife's barren. I am the least likely person uh, for, for this plan to be executed through. And yet what we see is that God draws close to Abraham and sees a miracle happen. And Abraham trusts God. Abraham trusts God with this crazy big promise. So uh, looking at Abraham, he had nothing going for him at least in the natural, uh, other than his faith. And God, I would, I would wager that God picked Abraham because he was a man of faith. He certainly didn't pick him because he was a young, virile, you know, great dad already who had a ton of kids already. Like he, he wasn't a great candidate for being the father of many nations, except that Abraham was a man who trusted God. And Abraham was a man of faith. Uh, just a quick definition of the word faith, because I get lost in the word faith sometimes. It can mean so many different things. But for all intents and purposes now, uh, we're going to use faith as, as what trusting God looks like. It's a bit of a narrow definition. It can mean lots of different things and have lots of nuance to the word faith. But uh, the one I like and the one that will be more, most helpful for us today is faith is what is just the word we use for trusting in God. Trusting in God as our ultimate source of uh, of security and, and significance. So that's what faith is. So Abraham's distinctive feature is that he trusts God. It actually says it in a very nice sort of succinct way in Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So uh, probably you've heard us, if you've listened to sermons before, there's a good chance you would have picked up on a definition of righteousness that actually means right relationship. If you do a word study on righteousness, the best, uh, many, many translations use righteousness, but Probably a better, bit more cumbersome, you know, term would be right relationship. So Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham trusted the Lord. Abraham had faith. And that was credit to, credited to him as right relationship. Meaning, we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago, that trust or relationship are really inextricable. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as closeness and as the point. So that's what Genesis 15, 6 is saying. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, you know, I want to be a person of faith and I want God to execute his plan through me. I want to have active faith. I want to trust God. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, having faith and a level of trust in God that's, I mean, if you read it, we don't have time today, but if we were to read all the, <laughs> the opportunities that Abraham had not to trust God and yet did, that's a difficult task. I mean, uh, he was called to sacrifice the first son that he has, which is probably the most awkward thing that he could possibly be asked to do. It's like, I thought you wanted me to be the father of many nations, and now I have to sacrifice my son. Um, uh, he was asked to leave his 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 home country. Uh, so many different things that were uncomfortable. And so we start to unpack Abraham's faith-filled life. And it's like, oh, that actually looks pretty difficult. Uh, but nevertheless, I want to be a person of faith. So the question I want to ask us today is what is the enemy of faith or trust in God uh, in your life and in my life? What prevents us from uh, walking in the kind of active faith that would see God use us and know us closely? Because um, I think a lot of the time that my distance from God comes from the fact that I don't trust him. And uh, I tend to avoid him because sometimes he asks me to do things that I don't want to do. And 
my trust in him wanes often. And, and the tragedy of that is it results in distance between him and I. So what is, the, what is the enemy of it? What is the enemy of faith and trust? And what I want to talk about today is this concept of pain. And uh, I think that we have trouble trusting in God because we fear pain a lot. Uh, and rightly so. There's a lot to be, there's a lot to fear in pain. It's very uncomfortable. It's, uh, nobody hopes for it. Nobody wants hurt. Nobody likes being hurt. And it, it, so often in my life and perhaps in yours, pain aversion, pain mitigation, uh, the pursuit of comfortability, the absence of pain really becomes a driving force of the decisions that I make. And so what I feel is that when I, when I look at Abraham's life in the Old Testament, uh, and we see that trust is credited, credited to him as right relationship, there's a lot of cost and a lot of painful, uncomfortable situations that Abraham's put in. And uh, I think you and I deny ourselves all sorts of opportunities for intimacy, intimacy and trust with God because of the pain that uh, often trust-based relationships require. They seem to be inextricable from one another. So uh, I, I think we know this intuitively, and I'd like to just use a little example. We know intuitively that trust and, 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 and right relationship and pain are all kind of mixed together. And uh, uh, the, the, an example that I think of is the classic child, the classic spoiled child that wants candy. That's not good for them. Now, a parent knows and is very comfortable, hopefully, with the idea of denying their child candy for the sake of what will ultimately be way more harmful to them, of consuming too much candy. And a parent is very comfortable hurting <laughs> their child uh, and causing pain. Um, have you ever seen a kid that doesn't get what they want? They're in a lot of pain, and it is, makes no sense to them. They're screaming. There's fits. But it's intuitive to a parent to go, I'm going to, quote unquote, hurt you right now, and I'm going to cause you emotional distress for the sake of sparing you from what is ultimately harmful to you, uh, you know, be it uh, whatever the dangers of sugar are in that particular example. So uh, what I want to do is, is just take a quick second to define some terms for us as we move forward in discussing the role of pain in relationships. And I, I want to I take the word hurt and divide it into two, uh, just so that we're, we're using these definitions properly. Um, hurt is used for a lot of different things, but I want to kind of parse it out so that we can have a good discussion about it. Um, uh, I want to separate hurt and harm. And there's some good psychology on this, and at some point it's all just semantics and definitions of terms, but this is what we'll use for today, is that hurt is an inevitable uh, thing that happens to us all. It's the result of just being alive where hurt and pain happen all the time. And it's kind of unavoidable. And it just seems to be a natural byproduct of growing close to people. There's misunderstandings. There's, there's, there's accidents. There's even, uh, there's even um, you know, just the, it's the natural byproduct of growing, growing close to each other. And then there's harm, which is the intent for evil, and it's it's breaking relationship. It's uh, it's damage. It's abusive. It has no redeeming value whatsoever. 
But defining pain as something that's more benign, like the, in the example of a, of a child with candy, uh, it's actually really good that that child is in pain for a second by not getting what they want. So maybe that helps you in, in, in separating those two things. So here's something I'm learning about myself uh, in, in, in all of this, is that uh, I actually feel, I've noticed this about myself recently, is that I feel quite insecure to cause, to feel and cause pain for the sake of growing relationship. I'm not sure that I operate very often out of a confidence that pain aversion isn't the most important thing. Uh, and what I've also been really realizing about myself is that I'm actually an untrustworthy friend, leader, uh, if I am more concerned with n myself and the people around me avoiding pain than I am about actually them being harmed. And so there's a lot of, uh, well, I wrote down the sentence that I kind of just realized is not, this, this is me speaking personally here, not telling the truth for fear of hurting someone is extremely harmful. Uh, and I think that you and I walk around a lot of the time possessing a lot of truth inside our hearts. Hopefully it's from scripture and what God would, would implant in us, but there's a lot of truth that should be shared. And sometimes that truth is really, really painful. Now for, for, for Abraham, it would have been the truth is that God has promised me to be used to be part of the reconciliation plan of the whole world. Like that is some amazing truth. And that truth far overshadows all the pain that now, you know, comes as a result of pursuing that truth and walking in it. And God is very honest with Abraham all through the stories. And, he's, and God seems very comfortable with uh, hurting Abraham. It's kind of a strange language to use, I know, because we use hurt for so many things. But hurting him so as not to harm the ultimate relationship that he wants to have with Abraham. So maybe you, maybe you can resonate with me in this. Where truth can some truth hurts is a very popular thing to say. And uh, have you ever thought that you know, fearing pain, uh, causing it in other people, and feeling it yourself, is actually an extremely dangerous thing if there's life-giving truth that needs to be talked about. So uh, I I feel like the enemy gets really really clever and crafty with us, and he get, he asks us to feel he asks us to fear pain ultimately. He asks us to uh, he asks us to to fear hurt, and this is very very clever because uh, if he can get us to fear pain and hurt, then what actually ends up happening is we aren't intimate or close or we don't trust anybody. Because there's a very very handy trick if you're if you don't want to feel any pain, just don't trust anybody, <laughs> don't be close to anybody, don't care about anybody, don't fight for anybody, don't don't uh, don't care deeply. That's a really great way to you know not have pain. And then the result of that is isolation and distance, which of course, as we talked about a little while ago, is the enemy's goal. So uh, I I mean think about your own life. Can you name a relationship that's meaningful to you in your life? One that is really substantial, that doesn't have any painful situations attached to it? There's probably a positive correlation between hurt and forgiveness and pain and discomfort and wrestling all that through and the real grind of pursuing truth together that probably makes that relationship more meaningful. So there's actually a positive correlation between pain and intimacy, which is... Uh, seems to be a fact of life, but we spend a lot of time avoiding that. And I think I look at the world 
I look inside my own heart sometimes too, is I want love, but I also don't want pain. So the world and my flesh too, pursues love without pain. <laughs> I don't think it truly, I don't think true love exists without uh, levels of discomfort, but we see love in our culture start to be treated more and more as a commodity. And we all need love and we all want relationship, but we're trying to find it without, um, we're trying to find it without trust. And we're trying to find it without, uh, while still fearing pain. And it makes sense and it's logical. So the question becomes for us this morning is how do we destroy the fear that destroys faith? How do we destroy the fear of pain that destroys faith? And I'm going to submit this to you. And this is this. Uh, we're going to use Romans to to unpack this. But uh, um, I would uh, I would say this morning that what what destroys the fear of pain that destroys faith is obedience and trust, and walking in a trust based relationship with God, otherwise known as walking in faith, like Abraham did. Romans 4.20 uh, says this about Abraham. This is Paul uh, writing to the Romans about Abraham in the New Testament. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. So remember, Abraham's faith is what was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, and what did Abraham have faith in? Abraham had faith and was fully persuaded. I love that term. Abraham was fully persuaded that God was capable of doing what he had promised. Uh, God had promised to make him the father of many nations. Fast forward, that happened. And Abraham was fully persuaded that God would believe the promise. So here's what we have to ask, ask ourselves today. Is uh, what has he promised you and me? What should we be fully persuaded of? What, what are we putting our trust and hope in? Why would we ever embrace a life of pain and suffering uh, for the sake of a greater promise? What is that promise? Why would Abraham march through deserts and you know, go through all of these crazy situations? Uh, what was he so persuaded of? Why would he do all that? So here's what you and I can be fully persuaded that God has the power to do. It's save us. That's what he has promised. He has promised to save us through reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. That's what he's promised to do. Now, the question is, are you fully persuaded of that? Is that something that's in your heart? I'm like, I am fully persuaded that God has the power to rescue me. Because uh, here's the thing, is that, if we don't and aren't fully persuaded that God has the power to rescue us and save us, uh, we, are, we become way more tempted to, to take matters into our own hands and to make the point of our life not trusting in that promise and just kind of preserving ourselves. And the point of our life becomes not feeling pain. And the point of, ourselves, point of our life becomes control and uh, living by a totally different narrative. Because why would I want to feel pain and suffer if I'm not fully persuaded that God's going to save me and rescue me? <laughs> why, why would I go through all that if I think that I'm just going to be left hanging? No, no, no. I'm just going to shore up the walls. 
uh, and um, you know, do a little bit of charity here and there because I want to be a good person. But uh, actually fully trust God to the point where I would willingly be hurt and engage in painful circumstances for the sake of relationship, like, oof, that's a big task. And he better come through. And if we doubt God in that and don't trust him, pain mitigation becomes a very attractive objective in life. And the enemy is very happy to let us make that the point because the immediate repercussions of not wanting pain in our life is usually distance and just severing uh, meaningful relationships because they're usually the most painful. Uh, primarily God. So Romans five, uh, Romans six five to six says something uh, beautiful and unfortunate all at the same time. It says this: For if we have been united with Him, Jesus, in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. This is the promise we're talking about that we need to be fully persuaded of. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We know that sin is whatever breaks relationship, right? So we're still tracking with this whole objective. God is trying to set us free from everything that breaks relationship. What breaks relationship? We do. Our sinful, selfish nature does. So, uh... God is asking us to die like he died. He's asking us to crucify our sinful, selfish nature that wants to be comfortable and doesn't want to, you know, give of itself. He wants that sinful, selfish nature to die. So for what? <laughs> uh, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. I want a resurrection like his where we are alive in Christ, where the old is gone and the new has come. Our hearts are transformed. We live out of a place of ultimate security in the most substantial, solid truth of all time. That's you aren't condemned for all of your sins. What an amazing news. But when I read like this, I'm like a death like his. Oh man, that's no small task. So what does a death like his actually look like? Jesus seemed very unconcerned with pain mitigation in his life and ultimately, of course, in the cross. I can't imagine a more painful experience, both physically and emotionally. I think of him in Gethsemane in the garden, you know, uh, sweating blood. Those are, that is pain. But there's no more beautiful example of love triumphing over pain than in Jesus in the whole crucifixion story. Sweating blood, yet so desperate for relationship with you and I that it is for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Like, you want to talk about somebody who wasn't afraid of pain, ultimately? Now, what's interesting is that I think he was still kind of afraid of pain. He was sweating blood and saying, Father, if you take this cup from me, like, that'd be great, but not, not my will, but yours be done. That, like that's faith. Of course, Jesus has the best faith in the Father because they're one, which is the offer for you and I, by the way, to be one with the Father as they are one. Jesus promises that. How cool is that? But Jesus is saying, he's demonstrating for us the putting pain in its rightful place of what do I need to do so I can be close with the people that I love? 
Now, you really got to believe the narrative that we're created for relationship ultimately, for that to ever be worth it. And I think Jesus was buying into the narrative that God decided of the point of this is for us to be one. Let's make a way. Pretty amazing. So I think you can, there's a couple options for us is we could be mad at God for causing us pain. We could be mad at God for asking us to have a death like his and for us to follow him into crucifying our flesh like he did. Or we can trust him that he's saving us. <laughs> that, that that act of living in a way where we, in a lot of pain, offer ourselves, like crucifying yourself is not an easy thing. It's not a, there's pain in that. There's cost to that. There's uncomfortability in that. So we can be mad at him for it, or we can go, what must I do to be saved? Let me put, let me put the fear of pain in its rightful place and go, no, no, no. I need to be saved from this world and my sin. So, I think we can trust him that he's saving us. And we can be fully persuaded that we're promised reconciliation. Um, there's, a, there's a really great metaphor that I think works well for this. And um, um, medics in World War II specifically, uh, uh, I read this, that they had this, uh, one of the hardest parts for a medic in World War II. And, the, and, the, and, and what stories account as causing them the most distress as a medic is that if you're walking through a, a, a recent um, battle and there's people that are dead, dying, injured, you know, the aftermath, let's say, of a battle and a medic comes as, as soon as they can after that battle. And if they see somebody who they think, uh, based on first ass assessment, that they think will make it, they don't give them morphine. Because if they think they're going to make it, morphine would slow their heart rate down usually causes them to fall asleep and they have a way higher and, and, and they'll die. But for those people that are not going to make it and they're just on their last breaths, they give them morphine to ease their passing. How, what a gripping idea that uh, a medic has to go, I think you can make it and I think you can come back to life, so to speak. So I can't ease your pain right now. <laughs> I won't because I love you too much and I don't want to harm you. Like I'm going to hurt you right now so that you're not ultimately harmed, like die. And uh, I think about you and I all the time where I am on a battlefield called life screaming out for morphine, <laughs> just screaming for it. Like, please ease this. That hurts. That hurts. That hurts. And, uh, and I think that what Jesus would offer us in that moment is go, um, can we together push through? Can we push through this pain? And let's learn how to crucify our flesh so that we can be free and love the people around us. And in that moment, it takes so much trust and faith that God's going to rescue me of going, okay, this hurts. That person doesn't deserve my love for X, Y, and Z reasons. But I'm going to love my enemies like you asked me to, for example. That's a painful moment. Nothing will crucify your flesh like loving your enemies. Nothing to crucify your flesh like forgiving somebody who for sure wronged you. Uh, those are painful moments. And instead of asking for morphine, which for me is usually just not caring, distancing myself, blaming others. There's a lot of great morphines in life. But um, the more I take that morphine, the more I nod off to sleep. And the more I wind up alienated and actually dead. And the more... And the more disastrous form of the word dead. 
So, uh, I want to read a, a famous Diedrich Bonhoeffer quote. He's a, a, a famous theologian in the 20th century and who could probably be largely credited for recapturing what everyday discipleship looks like. Uh, very, very helpful theologian in the church today still. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. A very famous book. And this is probably the most famous excerpt from it, so I'll read it for you. <clears throat> it says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-like suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves over to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And hearkening back to the Romans verse, if we have a death like his, we have a resurrection like his. Perfect union with the Father, eternal life. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying, the beginning of the Christian life is the surrendering and the death of ourself. And we look around in this world and it offers a lot of painful situations and there's two ways we can approach them. We can approach them as an inconvenience to the narrative that we pick or we can see them as an opportunity to crucify our flesh and to take up our cross and follow our Lord and Savior into his plans and purposes for what's really going on in this world. Um, I want to read Romans 4, 22. It says this. Uh, this is Paul again speaking about Abraham. Uh, and correlating Abraham's journey to yours and I's. This is why it was credited to him as right relationship. The words it was credited to him were not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit right relationship, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What an amazing, what an amazing fact, what an amazing truth that he was delivered over to death to rescue us from ourselves. And so, uh, what would it look like for us to operate in that truth? What would it look like for us to fear God instead of fear pain? To live out of that? This is what I think faith is. It's not vibrato and it's, it's not emotion. It's being fully persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. But here's the thing, is in this world he can do it. Not in spite of the world, not in spite of pain, not in spite of suffering, through it. He's so powerful that this world is completely his footstool. The pain that you and I experience is nothing for him. The gospel is so powerful that the relational discord and pain that you and I feel every day is is a insignificant threat to the overwhelming, surpassing glory of what Jesus has accomplished in your and my heart. And you and I, through the power of the cross, have the Holy Spirit in our hearts that empowers us to overcome this world, to overcome the pain of it, not make it smaller. I, I don't think the Christian life is going, your life's going to get less painful. I mean, if you follow Jesus, you'll notice that it maybe gets more painful. That's usually the experience, but it also becomes so much more rich 
and worthwhile and deep and wide and profound. And love starts to define our life. So um, here's, the, here's what I would encourage you and I to kind of whisper to ourselves. Is as I give my life away, you will rescue me. This has been my prayer these days. As I give my life away, you will rescue me. And I can hear the enemies just sort of shivering in his boots to that statement. You and I are completely untouchable. <laughs> he can cause, the enemy can cause suffering. The enemy can cause pain. But what he can't do is prevent us from living a life of love. That's not his domain. He has no authority there. Jesus has the authority there. And as I give my life away, you will rescue me. And I think, my friends, that's faith. That's faith and in, in, that is trusting God that he will meet you and save you and reconcile you uh, despite what's going on in this world. And could we see, could we see the pain in this world as an opportunity to have faith in something that's so much more powerful than it without belittling it, without making it smaller, of fully acknowledging the pain in this world. I think it's very important to identify with it and not float around on some cloud like in pretending it doesn't exist. That's not where relationship is. That's not what intimacy is. That's not, what, that's not where discipleship occurs. So um, Abraham left home. Abraham had to leave his home. And he was the father of a nation. And God kept his promise to Abraham. And so I wonder where wonder what home you and I are supposed to leave today. What home are you called to leave? Personally, my home is in my pride. My home is in my desperation to keep pain away from me as much as possible. My home is selfishness. My home so often is anything that is anything that well, whatever doesn't cost me feels like home. And then God would say, can I give you a better home? Can I give you the promised land? Can I give you, can I set you free from your sin and selfishness? Can I reconcile you to me? Can I love you in such a way that overcomes the world? And my friends, to the degree that you and I choose that kind of faith is the degree to which God takes our faith and fulfills it and begins to advance the church, begins to build his kingdom, begins to reconcile God with others and with uh, and us between our friends. He, he builds relationship wherever he goes. He mends and constructs and builds and brings peace and shalom and fits all the pieces perfectly together. That's where he's going. That's what he's doing. That's what he's promised. And I want us to be fully persuaded of that. And I think that is credited to you and I as righteousness and right relationship. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that we would be fully persuaded in what you have said you have accomplished on the cross. And God, I admit that I look around and I, and I, I see situations in which I, I doubt your ability to overcome them. I doubt in your ability to fill my heart with enough love to overcome those situations. But Lord, I trust you and we trust you. And I, and I pray that you would give us faith in what you're able to do. I pray that you'd demonstrate your power in the sufferings of this world. I pray that you would use 
the inevitability of pain and suffering in this world as an opportunity for us to, to choose you and to glorify you and to say, you're the king of kings and you're the name above all names and you're the savior of my soul, not, not my ability to keep pain at bay. God, would you convict us of a much deeper problem than worldly, earthly suffering? Would you convict us of the problem of sin that separates us? Oh, Lord, you've promised to save us, and you've outlined the plan, and it's to have a death like yours so we can have a resurrection like yours. So, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to die and the faith to live a resurrection life that's free to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.